Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. This program is produced by 2SER 107.3 in association with the UTS Business School. And each week, we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. This week, we take a look at the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the profound impact COVID-19 has had upon the delivery of services for those with disabilities and the livelihoods of those who care for them. With over 338,000 participants with disability already on the scheme, 740,000 people on the disability support pension and 280-odd thousand receiving the carer payment, the big question is how the NDIS will fare over the next few months. To discuss life in the time of COVID is our panel of guests. Andrew Highland is the CEO of NDIS Provider Lifestyle Solutions. Professor Simon Darcy is a long-time advocate for disability in both state and federal policy from the University of Technology Sydney's Business School and one of the original architects of the NDIS from its very conception, Shadow Minister for the NDIS and Government Services, the Honourable Bill Shorten. Federal Minister for the NDIS and Government Services, Stuart Robert, and the National Disability Insurance Agency were both contacted to appear on today's program, but unfortunately neither could make it in time for broadcast. Mr. Shorten, as Shadow Minister for the NDIS, you have a particularly interesting role to play in ensuring that the scheme protects some of Australia's most vulnerable, uh, not only from the physical impacts of COVID-19, uh, but by extension, the economic impacts of COVID-19. So how important a piece of national infrastructure is the NDIS at a time like this? The National Disability Insurance Scheme is one of the really important threads of the nation's safety net. I know there's the age pension, there's superannuation, there's the award system, Medicare, but also now I'd say the NDIS is up there. It's one of the top five pillars of our safety net. And for hundreds of thousands of people, it's the difference between dignity and um, desperation. And Andrew and Simon, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as both a... a an academic who's interested in the area of the NDIS and as a service recipient, I can certainly um, say that uh, the, the program, even though it's had a significant number of faults, has provided, uh, as Bill said, a more dignified and equitable way of funding disability across the country, as well as providing just more money into the system that individuals now have greater choice um, and greater control, but with some parts of the program that can still be significantly improved. And what was the situation like before the NDIS, before uh, the disability sector was somewhat consolidated under a umbrella scheme? How easy or difficult was it for people, firstly, with disabilities to access services, but secondly, for the sector as a whole to receive the funding it requires? Well, I, I think that separation that you've just made is an important one because um, funding used to go to organisations that would then provide services for people with disability. So the, the system has been flipped on its head and it's been, while it's been disruptive to the service organisations, the spirit and intent of providing people with choice over their own lives could only really happen with an individualised funding system. So block funding uh, was in, you know, inherently difficult for the individual to navigate to either get onto it 
or to control when they needed their supports, how they wanted them to delivered or with something as personal as disability supports between, you know, which is a very interpersonal transaction, um, who was delivering those supports as well. Now, on the 9th of April, the federal government announced $154 million were being dedicated to support Australians living with a disability, experiencing domestic violence or otherwise doing it tough during COVID-19. $90 million has gone directly to supporting disability services, along with a raft of additions to the NDIS, including financial assistance to providers to support retention of workers, including advanced payments, uh, a 10% coronavirus loading on some supports, changes to cancellation policies and extending NDIS plans for up to 24 months. Andrew, Lifestyle Solutions is a registered NDIS provider. What have your impressions been on the strength of the NDIS to function effectively through a pandemic? Thanks, Max. I think everybody in in the system has been working incredibly hard to uh, respond to this this pandemic. And I think the NDIS have uh, put a lot of effort in. There's been a lot of consultation with, with the sector. I think that's one of the big improvements I've seen. The consultation with the sector has uh, has much improved. I think the the turnaround is always a bit slower than what you want, and um, but that is the challenges of working with a very big, large system. I think we welcome all of those improvements, but we could go a bit quicker. Would be our impressions. And how quickly, in in your experiences, was the response by the NDIS to? The pandemic was it a very quick action plan that was formulated in time for things to start moving before the pandemic became too serious an issue to avoid i think they moved as quick as they could would be my answer i think they moved quickly but they probably moved as quick as they could for a very large organization i think one of the things that i observed was that there was a lot of reliance on the other initiatives um, nationally, so they let the federal government take care of, I guess, the whole population first before moving into disability-specific actions. Now, Mr. Shorten, as Shadow Minister for the NDIS, I'm sure you have an opinion on what Andrew has just said, that effectively the rest of Australia was taken care of before some of the country's most vulnerable people were. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. It's always difficult in tough situations do you go to Polly, Anna and Blue Sky and say, well, they're giving it their best go and, you know, let's all be happy? Or do you go too negative and say, you know, everything's just crap and the, what the government's done is crap? I probably would walk a line somewhere between the two exceedingly positive and exceedingly negative views. I think there has been some thought given, but I thought it was slow, I'll be honest. I think um, our previous speaker was uh, being polite. I think there's disability has been a bit invisible in the response, specifically it's a $550 per fortnight coronavirus supplement being paid on some payments for people on the DSP or carers. And I think that is a problem. I think that the government's rationale for not giving this payment to people on the disability pension is that they say that these payments are already higher than the Dole or Newstart. And they're generally paid to people who are not in the workforce. And so because people aren't in the workforce, they're not so directly impacted by the economic impacts of coronavirus. But that's a fiction, isn't it? The argument that somehow you're not impacted because you're not currently working makes no allowance for loss of services, increased costs. So I I think that's been a problem. Um, I also think that 
the NDIS packages, the extra 10%, um, it's not as of right, but I think people on the NDIS have to go and chase that extra 10% top up. Uh, certainly that's the anecdotal evidence I've had, and I think that's not a good thing too. I think on the workforce, um, they've given bonuses to people working in aged care to help them get through, but not in disability. And the argument that somehow people with disabilities or big groups of them aren't uh, as at risk as older people is, is not a well-thought-out argument, in my opinion. I'd like to support Bill, uh, first off, around the comments of invisibility. Um, you know, a great deal of the time, uh, people with disability, are, they're others, they're omit, uh, omitted and they're overlooked. And certainly there was a lot of talk around aged care, uh, but at the same time, no recognition that within service provision, and it's a WHS issue um, as much as anything else, that physical distancing with personal care service just isn't possible, the nature of the work. So not to have that support early on of the disability ministers talking about the need for access to gloves, masks, protective equipment um, really didn't come through early on. And so we saw a communique that was coordinated by uh, universities, AFCO, disability organisations that really pushed those very important points through now, we're obviously on the topic of cases that can slip through the cracks when you have any of these large-scale government plans as we've got at the moment. Now, since the 21st of March, almost $600 million has been paid in one-month advance payments to almost 5,000 NDIS providers. So that was designed to offer immediate cash flow relief and ultimately ensure that services could continue. As of last week, more than $300 million in weekly provider payments had been processed. Now, that indicates, at least from the government's data, that the majority of services are continuing and participants are still accessing the majority of their disability supports that they require. So what sort of cases do slip through those cracks? As Mr. Shorten, you've mentioned, you've had a wealth of anecdotal evidence over the last few weeks that the system is effectively failing some people. I don't know if this strictly fits the examples you're looking for, but I spoke to an amazing woman. Her name's Andrea. She's in her early 40s. She's the mum of four daughters. She developed a chest infection a few years ago, which left her with progressive nerve disease and a brain lesion. She now uses a wheelchair full time. Now, this is a woman who was a you know a registered nurse, 20 years experience, two master's degrees. She'll never work again. She received a pathology bill for a blood test that can't be claimed back from Medicare. That's, you know, that's expensive. She can't afford private health insurance being on the DSP. She didn't qualify for testing when she got the upper viral respiratory infection. And then her support workers and allied health service who normally visited her had to stop visiting. She then had to go out and buy PPE for them because she couldn't get any from the national stockpile. It shouldn't be this hard, should it? I think the other aspect that became critical at times too was with shortages and where you've got a population that um, may not be as mobile as others, then there needs to be responses to make sure that they're not missing out. So we saw the supermarkets come up with their response, uh, one of the supermarkets earlier than others, to ensure that there were delivery services. That worked pretty well in metropolitan areas, but when it came to rural and remote areas, there were still significant numbers of people with disability 
trying to get access to you know basic food provisions etc when everybody went nuts over toilet paper and staples and then when you come back to bill's example you know um organizations like uh, uh lifestyle and bright sky if they don't have supplies of uh the protective equipment that's required which are the you know some of the main the main way people with disability are accessing then you've got a systemic failure where you know we had the death of a disability support worker in Victoria that brought the issue to the fore very sadly that should have been something with the national stockpile that they should have been looking at earlier but it wasn't seen to be as critical so what are your thoughts on the ability for a continuity of services? We've raised it over the last 15 minutes. A word that keeps coming up when we're discussing the sector is that things get forgotten. How realistic is it for services to continue at a rate where they're able to provide to their recipients a, an equitable level of care in a time like this where safety is so concerning? I'll make a, I'll make a starting comment on that. Um, NDS, uh, National Disability Services, uh, surveyed their members recently. Uh, they found that 50% of those organisations thought that they were somewhat confident of being able to continue service during the pandemic. Um, but again, I think, you know, as we've moved into the pandemic, we've seen some innovation in the sector. And I must say, um, you know, the, the business community has been wonderful, retooling to supply. So we're actually seeing a better supply come on board around those um, uh, the PPE and, and other um, and other service provision. But again, if we didn't, you know, if we're in a critical explosion or exponential uh, growth of contacts, then we'd be in a very uh, different position. We all know that there's going to be a workforce shortage to support disability into the future, and because of what's happened. I think there's a real opportunity and an opportunity for government to incentivize more people to work in the sector. And I see that as, a, as something that could come out as a positive on the other side. Now, speaking on potential workers in the sector, the Australian Services Union, the Health Services Union and United Workers Union applied to the Fair Work Commission last Tuesday to introduce a temporary award allowance to cover the 130,000 workers employed by the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now, that $5 an hour compensation is there for risks in assisting clients suspected of having the coronavirus. Now, the Commission will hear the case today. Uh, Mr Shorten, what are your thoughts on the application before we get to the other two panellists? I think it's reasonable. I think one of the ironies, of course, of um, at long last the new start being increased is that the government's increased it to a level now that for some disability workers, they might almost be better on new start or job sec than they would be going to work, which um, is a reflection on the low wages and disability. I also think we want to deliver a, a, a system in the NDIS where individual workers go out to individual houses and I'm supportive of that but we're asking people to take on board systems of work where we should have the best health and safety and the best training possible so I think the um, push for an improvement in the remuneration is overdue and sensible when you look at the and the other thing of course is not only the status quo which is too low not only the nature of the work in the new labour market for disability but the biggest issue for me coming out of this pandemic of a big, of the big picture in disability is where are the workers going to come from? 
So you've got to pay better. Are there any other thoughts from the panel on that? Particularly, it's hard to incentivise people to get into the disability sector. Look, there, there certainly are. And uh, I think one of the things that the system, uh, the system now allows is we are seeing um, uh, care workers empower themselves through um, either setting up their own individual businesses or setting up little collaborative uh, businesses. We've seen things like workers' co-ops in South Australia, um, where we've also seen within the um, you know, traditional service providers in New South Wales, for example, the old home care service was, inverted commas, privatised um, with Australian Unity taking up that, uh, taking up that uh, provision only to find out, you know, two and a half years, three years down the track, that they offloaded their uh, disability service clients. Now, part of that's still going on at the moment. So there was, there's a group of people uh, that, and I must say that I, you know, I've been one of those people who went through uh, a rather traumatic transition with Australian Unity saying it's not worth being in the disability sector, keeping their aged care that pay at a higher rate. Um, so I'd like to support Bill's uh, comments about making sure that there's a uh, you know, an, an equity of an equity or an equality of the amount that uh, aged care and disability uh, workers are paid. It's more than just training. I think we need a career part for people in the sector. There's too much capitalisation. There is not not enough secure work, and people are not incentivised. So it's not just the pay rate and the training, but it's also a career part. And we want to make this sector more attractive for people. The previous December quarter's growth of 0.5% GDP, uh, according to data from the ABS, it was pushed into the positive, uh, mainly through spends in social services and healthcare sectors. So the NDIS and the disability sector, by extension, could be a fantastic boost to the economy at a time like this. Now, does that need to be an important reframing of the discussion around COVID-19, the disability sector, and by extension, the NDIS? You know, Bill talked at the very start about about a safety net and make the system more efficient and uh, give people with disability better value for money and, and a better experience. So I think there's great opportunities on the other side. It's a bit like having a wedding, having a disability. As soon as the word wedding's there, we know the price goes up. It's very similar with uh, disability. So we've seen some circuit breakers uh, with 3D printing, for example some real innovations about cheap customization for individuals and what those needs are. We're seeing uh, you know, whole uh, new approaches to the way that people with disability are having services provided around uh, uh, recreation, sport and tourism as well. When I say that it's a safety net, I want us to have the best safety net in the world. That isn't uh, the lowest common denominator. So when I pushed for the creation of the NDIS back in 09 and 10, it was because I believe that we should be the best in the world at disability. And it's because I believe that if you empower people's lives, uh, you turn people from charity into consumers. The biggest problem in disability isn't the impairment, in my opinion, but it's a lack of power and a lack of money. So I wanted the NDIS to create markets. I wanted it to attract new investment. I wanted it to lead to innovation. So I got no doubt the NDIS can drive a whole lot of good things. But of course, um, we've just got to make sure that people are at the centre of it. And my concern in the last six or seven years is that regardless even of the pandemic, 
the NDIS had become a very defensive bureaucracy. And I wouldn't want to go back to before we existed, but many of the decisions seem to be made on a matrix that if you got one answer wrong out of 11, the organisation could justify not agreeing with you. I'd like to follow up on that, uh, particularly around the area of um, empowerment. And we, we're seeing for the first time within um, NDIS plans that uh, a more serious look at the way supports can occur with in education and employment. Now, I, I also have to say that I'm working in this space uh, through a, a Australian Research uh, Council grant looking at disability self-employment and uh, entrepreneurship. And we know that the way to a, an independent life is through uh, people having, if they want and they're able, to get into the workforce. But we know with the people with disability, there's been a whole lot of unemployment where even if they're um, you know, much better qualified than others, they're banging their head against a brick wall. We've seen that we, the NDIS now has a disability employment plan and they've put a target of moving from uh, 26% of NDIS participants being employed to 33% of participants being employed over the next three years. Now, Mr. Shorten, in the past, you've commented on fraud in the NDIS. Uh, now, you've described the NDIS as having a padlock on the front of the scheme and a welcome mat out the back for the crooks. The federal government announced the establishment of a task force in July of 2018, saying that there'd be 100 dedicated officers who would be set up to target people ripping off the NDIS, and it would create, and I quote, a culture of integrity around the NDIS, which I can imagine is something very intrinsic to a program like this. On April 14th of this year, that exact same task force seized an estimated $340,000 in property and luxury vehicles from an NDIS wrought. You have said in the past that the NDIS management's acceptance of a 10% threshold for fraud is ridiculous. Is it realistic to expect a lower threshold for attempted fraud in a government scheme? Well... Just to give the context, uh, we had a whistleblower come to us who was a former federal policeman who was put into the NDA to monitor, and he was saying it's underfunded and not doing enough work, and there'd only been one prosecution. And my concern is not, uh, and but so that's what motivated what we said that they seem to have an insufficient audit mechanism there. But other people said, "Oh, Bill, don't say about any problems with the NDAs because then it'll make everyone look like there's something dodgy." I think we can walk the line between the two positions. I am concerned if there are some, not the people who claim the NDIS, not the participants, but if there's some service providers which are scams, well, we've got to call that out. I don't want people preying on vulnerable people. But um, I don't think the government's done enough in that area. You know, I can only go on with the evidence I see and I don't see enough of it. Uh, for me, it's about defending the NDIS and protecting the participants. And wherever there's a payment scheme of billions of dollars, it will attract some opportunists and some crooks. So I distinguish between the right of participants to get packages of support and the scam artists, some of whom will be ripping people off. I mean, the idea that out of a multi-billion dollar scheme, there's only been one or two frauds in the last two years isn't real, is it? But it's not an indictment of the system. It's an indictment of the management, which just says you've got to 
just make sure you're not being taken for a ride. It's taxpayer money. If I may just interject, is when you talk yeah, about sure. the, the management, is that a comment on the bureaucracy or the government? Well, I know people hate politics, but ultimately the government's in charge, aren't they? You know, they want to be around for all the good news and then for the bad news they palm it off onto a faceless bureaucracy. You've got to work out when you're in charge, just when it's sunny or when it's raining. I'll ask one more question for the panel before we go. Milton Friedman, the famous economist, he once said that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. As we see a lot of other government programs come into creation, Job Seeker, Job Keeper, and the questions about how the government will support its population through the next few months, what are some of the results of COVID-19 that are going to either positively or negatively affect the NDIS going forward? People with disability are so used to living in isolation. Maybe it will get the rest of us to think a little bit more. It might give give the rest of us um, a bit of an insight into what it's like to be to be isolated, and maybe we can treat people with a bit more kindness and um, visibility into the future. Yeah, it's certainly one of those areas where um, those of us that have got um, high-level disabilities with mobility-related issues um, have developed our our own ways of trying to uh, break down some of the um, factors that impact on us. And so moving to, uh, you know, telehealth systems just seems so, you know, why that it's taken so long to come in just seems ridiculous. I think the participants in this panel are pretty insightful, so I'm very, I'm not going to try and cover the field of observations. First of all, we're not through the pandemic, so I still reserve the right to learn more lessons. But a couple of things which have occurred to me or early observations. One is um, the pandemic's highlighted that people with disability is still more invisible than other sections of the community. The second thing on a more positive note, which it's highlighted to me, though, is that the use of technology in, in communication can perhaps lead, lend itself to more productivity and better quality of life outcomes. You know, we are becoming, I think this has forced a lot of people to move up the technology, the technology curve in a way which we mightn't have been prompted to if the pandemic hadn't happened. So that's a plus to balance out the first negative. But Another negative is that staff shortages, careers, a workforce, it's highlighted, I think, the um, vulnerability and the, the lack of forward planning. I also think that day services have, got, have been particularly challenged by this. We've tended to put people at home and leave them there. So I think that there's real strain on our day services system in disability. I do worry longer-term trends. Will the government try and raid the NDIS to pay for other debt? I don't know. They say they won't, but, I, you know, I think it's legitimate anxiety. Also, I think that employment for people with disability who get pushed down the priority list and is not doing that well now. So there's just half a dozen observations and trends, but I think there'll be a lot more and there'll be a lot more insight to emerge as well. Well, as the Honourable Mr Shorten has said, the value of the NDIS as a vital part of our national infrastructure will only become more obvious at a time like this. All Australians are doing it tough, but for those who rely upon the NDIS to maintain their livelihoods, the challenges are in many ways even greater. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Business Futures. Our guests today were Andrew Hyland, Professor Simon Darcy and the Honourable Bill Shorten. Think Business Futures is recorded at the studios of 2SER Sydney. 
Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman, and I'll see you again here next week.